Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts once again for the final time in our series, Acts 28. And we're going to be at the end of that chapter, beginning with verse 17. Let's pray and ask God's blessing and help on our time together this morning. Our Father, we come before you today as we conclude this glorious book. Help us to understand the truths that are contained in these verses. Apply them to our lives. Help us to glory in Jesus all the more. And Lord, thank you for this journey that we've been in, in Acts. And Lord, we look forward to Malachi next week. But Lord, help us to conclude this chapter well. In your name, amen. And so 18 months ago, we began in chapter 1. Chapter 1, if you will remember, sees King Jesus risen from the dead. He's spending 40 days with his disciples, commissioning them to go to be his witnesses. Check. He, they did that. Where? In Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. We said in the very beginning of this sermon series, if you remember 18 months ago, that it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But really a better name, as some have referred to it as, is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. For it is the Holy Spirit of God that has drawn every sinner that has believed in this book. It is the Holy Spirit that has guided men and women into conversations about Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who commissions missionaries like Paul and Silas and Barnabas. And through the Holy Spirit's empowering of his church and, and believers, we have seen as a result that the gospel has borne fruit. Amen? And that's what we said week after week. The gospel bears fruit. That's what Acts is all about. We've seen it in cities like Jerusalem and Derby and Lystra, Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica. And now we see in this final chapter, the gospel makes its way all the way to the headquarters of the Roman Empire. And it's not that there wasn't a church already established in Rome, for there was. There was already believers there before Paul arrived. But Paul coming here will be the continuation of the story of the city, of how the gospel continues to make inroads into the hearts of men and women He's come a long way, Paul has, and he's wanted to come to Rome for so long. And we know this because this is exactly what he wrote the Romans. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, he actually even mentions this. And he wrote the book of Romans before he even went on this whole journey and was arrested. He actually wrote it as he was going back to Jerusalem, and that's when he was arrested there. He says in Romans 1.13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greek and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul tells the Romans way before this that he has long intended to come see them. But for one reason or another, the Holy Spirit has not directed Paul there yet. And little did he know that it would be through this course of action that him being arrested and held for over two years, three years really up to this point, that he would make that journey as a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ going to Rome. He would not go there on some missionary trip as he had been everywhere else, 
although it is a missionary trip, just not one that is par for the course. And so he is eager to preach the gospel. And God fulfills these desires in Paul by bringing him there and giving him this opportunity. How does this all happen? If you remember over the last few weeks, really over the last 28 chapters, chapter after chapter, we see a consistent theme. And this is the sovereign hand of God, guiding and directing. God is in control. It is God who makes the gospel grow. It is God who sends the gospel and calls sinners to repentance. It was God who brought Paul to Jerusalem and allowed him to be arrested on false charges. It was God who allowed Paul to stay under Roman custody so he could be protected from the Jews who wanted to kill him. And it was God who made Paul a promise, saying, you will go to Rome. You will not die here. So Paul appeals to Caesar, and he goes there on a boat three to four weeks to just traveling on the seas until they get to a fierce storms and a shipwreck, and he gets bitten by a snake. And wow, the last few chapters have been intense. And after several months of leaving Jerusalem, they finally get there. They got there because God wanted Paul there. It's probably not the way he would have drawn it up, but it's what God brought to pass. Let's actually begin with verse 16 in Acts 28. And when we came into Rome, Luke writes for us, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So Paul, when he gets to Rome, he isn't placed into prison. He's really placed under house arrest. And he's placed under guard, and he's chained to this guard. So it's not like he has free reign. He doesn't have as bad as some of the other prisoners in Rome, where he's in like in a dungeon, starving to death or being beaten there. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a, a soldier. We know this from other scriptures and other passages that Paul wrote. And he's allowed to stay by himself. He's afforded privileges there. Why? One, because he's a Roman citizen that really has not faced any legitimate charges. And this is why he's there. He's appealing to Caesar. And Paul does not waste time, does he? He gets into Rome, and just like he told the Romans... Several years before, I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Verse 17 says, after three days, he calls together the local leaders of the Jews. John MacArthur said about this passage, Paul does not like to let grass grow under his feet. He gets right to work. And he summons the local leaders of the Jews together. And this is exactly what Paul often did when he went to a new city, right? He goes to the Jew first. He always went to the Jews first. He went to the synagogues. Well, he's under house arrest, so he can't go to the Jews. So he has the Jews come to him. He still keeps his philosophy even here in Rome. After three days, he calls the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he says to them, brothers. And he calls them brothers not because they're Christians, but they're fellow Jewish people like himself. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. 
But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. He wants them to know from the beginning that the things that they might hear about him or have heard about him are not true. He has not broken the law of Moses. He's not violating the Jewish customs because that's the charges against him. That he's teaching people not to follow the customs of the Jewish people like being circumcised or not observing feasts or festivals. That he desecrated the temple by bringing a Gentile in. None of those things are true. Those are all false charges. And he wants to set the ground straight from the beginning. Whatever you've heard or going to hear, believe me, it's not true. There's no evidence for this. Even the Romans wanted to set me free, but because they wanted to do the Jews a favor, they kept me in these bonds. And now I'm here as a citizen of Rome to appeal to the emperor. And it's this reason why I've asked to see you, he says in verse 20. What is it? Paul is just not concerned about his reputation for his reputation's sake. Paul is concerned about his reputation for the sake of the Lord Jesus. He knows that once the word gets into town that there is a Jew in chains, they're going to want to know why. It is for this reason I have asked to see you and speak with you since... It is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Why am I in bond? Why am I a prisoner? It's because of what Paul says, this phrase, the hope of Israel. What does that mean? Well, Paul's already referred to that phrase, if you will remember. In chapter 26, in verse 6, when he was on trial there in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, he says... And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. The hope of Israel is none other than the Messiah. He knows that he is a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Paul often began his prison epistles with that greeting. Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. Literally, he's wearing chains for preaching the gospel. This is why they hate him. They hate Paul because he is preaching a crucified and risen Messiah. A Messiah that the Jews asked the Romans to crucify. And a Messiah that has conquered death by resurrecting from the grave. He's already gone through those arguments through Festus and Felix and King Agrippa. And so when he says the hope of Israel, the Jews who are hearing him know exactly what he means. This word hope is not like a, it's not like a wish. It's not like, oh man, I hope it doesn't rain today. Like when you say it in that way, you're like, man, I wish something doesn't happen or I wish it does happen. This word hope is is not like a wish, but it's a confident assurance and a truth. The hope of Israel is the confident assurance that God of Israel promised a Messiah. This promise that God had made to Eve 
after Adam and Eve had sinned. That one day the serpent that had deceived them in that garden would one day have his head crushed by the serpent. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise in the Bible. It was a promise made to Abraham that from his son Isaac would one come a promised son to redeem you. A promise made to Moses that someone like him would come from one of his brothers and do all that he and his people could not keep God's law. It was a promise made to David, King David, that one of his sons would rule and reign on David's throne forever and ever and ever. It was a promise made to the prophet Isaiah and the other prophets that one day a person known as the servant of the Lord would come as a lamb to be slain. To die and to live again. Oh, the contents of Isaiah 53 are enormous. Promise after promise, the Jewish people clung unto a hope that one day they would see their Lord. That the Lord would bring them the kingdom and restore to them all that he has promised by to their fathers. So when Paul says, I am in chains because of the hope of Israel, he is saying... I know who the Messiah is and I am serving him and they have locked me up because of it. This is the hope of Israel. How do they respond? Verse 21. And they said to him, we received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here is reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Interesting. Paul doesn't know what they know. The first thing they tell him is, hey, we haven't, we've never heard about you. <laughs> we don't have any letters coming here informing us or telling us what's reported or what you've done. Anyone, everyone that's come here has not spoken evil against you. Interesting. But you know what? You seem like an interesting guy. And we'd love to hear what your views are about this thing. We hear this sect, that's what they refer to as Christianity, the, the way, this sect. It's just like an offshoot of Judaism. We've heard that this sect is always spoken against. So tell us why we shouldn't believe in this way Tell us what you believe the hope of Israel is, Paul. And the Lord opens the door for a great gospel conversation. Isn't this just tremendous? I mean, this doesn't happen without a sovereign God guiding and directing and putting people where they ought to be to hear the truth that they need to hear. We've heard of you Christians before, and we know it's not popular, but we're willing to hear you. And hear what you have to say. Look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they put it on the calendar. We're going to go hear what Paul says on this day. Clear your lunch schedules. They came to him at his lodging. Paul's under house arrest. Can't go anywhere. In greater numbers, a crowd comes. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, 
testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So they go there and they pack the place out. And Paul begins to teach and to preach from morning until evening. And you thought I preached long. From morning until evening, he expounded to them. He brought light to the truth. He answered their questions. And what did he give them? Did he give them his opinions? Did he give them just his experience? No. What did he expound on? Both from the law of Moses. What is that? The first five books of the Bible. Genesis or Deuteronomy. The law. The Torah. And from the prophets. Essentially everything else. In the Old Testament. Paul opened up the scriptures. And he expounded. He exposited. He brought up all this evidence. Of who the hope of Israel was to be. And he testified to them about this kingdom of God and about Jesus, trying to convince them, persuade them, plead for them to believe. It's amazing. All day, he tells them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The word for kingdom is the word rule. So when you see the kingdom of God in the the Bible, it's literally the rule of God. The rule of God. Paul is preaching how Jesus is not just the Christ, the Messiah, but he is the Lord of all. And his disciples saw this. This is why the book of Acts opens the way it does. I'd encourage you to go back to that first sermon 18 months ago and listen to that. As the glorious ascension happens... The disciples and the 120 who were gathered gather and see the Lord Jesus taken up from them into heaven to sit on his throne where he rules and reigns now. It is that belief and that confident assurance that they know that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now so we can do everything he's commanded us to do here. Because Jesus is king, because Jesus is Lord, what he has commanded cannot fail. He is ruling and reigning, and we have seen it. (laughs) We've been to places you would never have believed would understand and turn to Jesus. We've been to Gentile territory. We've been to pagan territory. We stood on Mars Hill. Acts 17. I could testify to you by the preaching of this gospel, by the preaching of the hope of Israel, that even the Gentiles turn to God. That's because this is what Jesus has promised. That the Holy Spirit has come and has empowered us to be witnesses because Jesus is ruling and reigning now. And that he's the hope of Israel. I'm sure Paul uh, opened up the prophecies. Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. He's to be born of a virgin. He's to be betrayed. He's going to be exchanged for 30 pieces of silver. He's like a lamb sacrificed. Again and again, Paul, I'm sure, went through all these prophecies, all these promises of the Old Testament to say who the Messiah is. And he's telling them, this is him. 
There's no other person on earth that could fit the bill. There is no other person that could fulfill all of these promises and all these prophecies. That's impossible. He is the hope of Israel. I have seen him with my own eyes. He died, but he lives. He's conquered death. It's morning till night. He's preaching and teaching. It reminds me a lot of what Jesus did in Luke 24. After Jesus resurrects from the dead, he walks on the road to Emmaus. He discovers two disciples there and asks them questions. And then he begins to unravel the scriptures for them and say, let me show you from the law and the prophets and the Psalms how all these things came to pass the last few days in Jerusalem. What a sermon to listen to. So how did they respond? Look at verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said. Some believed, but others disbelieved. And this is obvious, isn't it? There's always going to be people who reject. There's always going to be people who turn aside and not believe. Just because... Don't, don't get discouraged when you share the gospel with someone and say, Dan, I don't know how much clearer to make it. Just tell them the truth and let the Lord do the rest. The results are never up to you or I anyway. All we can do is to give the truth to people, no matter how offensive it may be, and let the Holy Spirit convict them and convince them of this truth. And this is what he says. This is also what he says to the Corinthians. As we preach Christ, as we preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You preach Jesus to those who are already on their way to hell and going to hell, and they're going to think that you're stupid, that you're a fool, that the message makes no sense. It's foolishness to them. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul knows this. He's seen it again and again in every city he's been to. Preach Christ. People will want to kill you. People will believe and support you. And a church will form. Don't worry about the results. Just be faithful to serve in the way God has called you to serve. And know there's going to be people who think you're an idiot. And there's going to be people who God will save. This is what Paul does. Just like anywhere else. Just like in this room, Sunday after Sunday. There's people who are convinced. And there's people who don't believe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, this verse is not on the screen. Just listen to this one. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. You preach Christ to people and God's people go out and they have a certain odor. It's the aroma of Christ. And for some, when they hear that message, when they hear the truth preached, when they see the Lord Jesus magnified, they are drawn to the scent of believers. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's working in their heart to draw them to him. And it's an aroma of life. Give me more of that. But for those who are rejecting, for those who are not believing, we smell like death. <laughs> Christians, don't be, 
Don't be alarmed or surprised when the world hates us. Don't be alarmed or surprised when, when they call us names or they say that our, our belief system is ancient and archaic and not for today and out of date and we're on the wrong side of history. We're going to smell like death to them because they're on their way to eternal death. We're to preach and proclaim Christ, the truth. And for those whom God is saving, we will smell like Christ. Well, how did they respond after this? Some believed, some didn't believe. Look at verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Luke says it all took one more thing, and they all left. Paul quotes from Isaiah. He says this, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So much for a seeker-sensitive sermon, Paul. Nope. Paul didn't care about dumbing down the message. He literally quotes to them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Of course you guys aren't believing. It's been prophesied you wouldn't believe. It's been prophesied that we're to go to our own people, the Jewish people, Paul says. And Paul's a Jew. And we will go and preach them just like Isaiah heard. They will hear but never understand. Does that stop us from going to them? No. They will see but never perceive. Does this stop us from showing them? No. And Why? Their heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed lest they should see this and understand and turn. And I would heal them. Paul is basically pronouncing judgment on them in the name of this Isaiah prophecy. Which, by the way, this Isaiah 6 passage is quoted five times in the scripture. It's one time in Isaiah and five times in the New Testament. It's in each of the four Gospels when Jesus quotes it to the Jewish people himself of why they don't believe. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, John 12, and here Acts 28. God says something once, you better listen. When the Bible repeats itself six times, it's pretty important. And so essentially Paul says, if you will not listen, if you will not hear, that's okay. The Gentiles will listen and they will hear. And guess what? I've seen it. I've been to Corinth. I've been to Philippi. I've been to Thessalonica. We have Titus who's on Crete. We have seen it with our own eyes. This Messiah is not just for us. God is saving a people from all tribes and tongues and nations. If you will not listen, they will. And praise the Lord for the Jews who do listen, who are saved, who do believe. But again, this shows God's sovereignty and salvation both over Jew and Gentile. That's always been his plan. The gospel coming to the Gentiles has always been his plan. Matter of fact, the grandmother of King David was a Gentile. 
God sovereignly in his wrath and judgment hardens hearts. And this has always been his plan. Here Paul speaks boldly as Isaiah did, as Jesus did. When using these passages to describe and explain the rejection and hatred of the Messiah. And this is what makes the confession of the Jewish people in Isaiah 53 so astounding. Isaiah 53, if you'll remember, we studied that last year, is a confession of a future Jewish people looking back on Jesus, realizing that he is the Messiah and that they had rejected him and now have turned to him. Hmm. It's sobering to think about it. But this is exactly what Paul is saying. If you won't listen, the Gentiles will. The world will believe in our Messiah and they will be grafted into the covenant blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is already doing this and it's always been his plan. But even then, I love what Luke writes here. Morning till evening, he is trying to convince them. He is pleading with them. Even though we understand that salvation is an act of God and the Holy Spirit blows into the hearts of men and women and we have no control over that, still, Paul doesn't know who is who and who is going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. He treats everyone the same. He treats everyone like a sinner who needs the gospel and who needs to repent and believe. Paul pleads with him. Paul's evangelistic fervor is so desirable here. He even says in Romans 9 and 1, my heart's prayer desire for Israel is that they would be saved. He even wishes himself, if it were possible, for Paul. Paul says in Romans 9, let me go to hell so that they will be saved. Paul has such a heart for these people, his own people. And may we, friends, also have that same fervor for those who don't know Jesus. Let, them do, let us do all that we can to get the gospel to where it ought to be, to preach the gospel faithfully and truthfully and boldly without hesitation. I love what Charles Spurgeon says and his fervor and evangelistic fervor that Spurgeon had. Spurgeon says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our own dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. We trust God. We believe God will save all that he will. But we know that we have a responsibility to take the gospel to every man, woman, and child that we encounter here and afar. So they get a disagreement over Paul. Some are saved, some are not. Some are convinced, just like everywhere. Look at verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. This is the second time that Luke fast-forwards two years in the last few chapters. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here, God is blessing Paul. Under house arrest, Paul is, by the way, paying his own way. 
Imagine that you're a prisoner held against your will, but you got to pay your own way. You got to rent your own house. You cannot leave. You're chained to a guard. So for two more years, this is what Paul did. Every day, he preached Christ to Jews, to Gentiles in Rome, warning them all, telling them about the kingdom, welcoming them with all boldness and without hindrance. He had such a freedom to preach Christ here to all who came to him. It's amazing. And the kingdom, this Christ who ruled and reigned, who resurrected and ascended, is coming back. Believe the gospel. Repent. Trust in him. And the book of Acts ends. And you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It can't end there. I mean, like, what a cliffhanger. I mean, we've been on a shipwreck. He's going to Caesar. What happened? Where's the rest of the story? Well, Luke doesn't write it. Luke doesn't write what happens over those two years. Luke doesn't write what happened to him at the end of Acts. Did Paul die there under house arrest? Well, I mean, what happened to him? Did he always, did he die in there in that condition? Did he get out? What happened? Well, we don't know here, but we do know some other things. Let's start with the Bible first. We know that during this two-year period while he's in Rome under house arrest, Paul wrote four epistles. They're commonly referred to as the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and a letter to a man named Philemon. All four of those letters, Paul mentions him being in chains, tied to a guard, especially the book of Philippians. So if you want to know what happened to Paul during those two years, I encourage you to read your Bibles. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Paul talks about him being in chains and his mindset and what's going on there. But what happens after two years? I mean, did he, did he die there? No. Philippians 1, chapter 12. Paul says this. He writes to the Philippians while he's under house arrest. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's telling these Philippians, don't feel sorry for me. Don't feel bad for me. Actually, this is good. Me being under arrest has actually brought the gospel to many more people. Can you imagine living with that mindset? We all live with the mindset of comfort and ease and our own success and advancement in life. Paul lived with this mindset. Whatever advances the gospel is, is good, whether it's not so good for me. How good was it, Paul? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Can you imagine? Do you think Paul shared the gospel chained to the man in his home? Here's a Roman guard, an imperial guard, Caesar's guards, right? He's there to appeal to Caesar. He's awaiting his trial. So Caesar's guards are guarding Paul. They have a shift change. A new guard comes in, latches himself onto Paul, and Paul says, hey, I'm glad you're going to stay for a while. I got some things I want to talk to you about. The shift change ends. A new guard comes in, and he says, this is great. And what does Paul say? And he writes to the Philippians, I've been able to tell every imperial guard about Jesus. This has actually served to advance the gospel. 
And the whole imperial guard knows why I'm arrested, that it is for our Jesus. And because of this, most of the brothers, the Christians in Rome and around the world, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more boldly to speak the word without fear. We also know that Paul didn't die during that period or at the end of that period. And let me tell you why. Because he even says at the end of the book of Philippians, or I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 1, he says in 119 and 124 that he is confident that through their prayers, this will lead to his deliverance. Paul knows he was about to be freed from house arrest. So what do we know? Well, that's all we know from the scriptures. But we do know a little bit more from church history and tradition. And you got to take this with a grain of salt. Because the scriptures are authoritative. We know that's true. Church history, we kind of gives us a little bit of understanding, but we can't take it as dogmatic as what the Bible says. We know that this time that Paul was in prison in the year 60. He came to Rome in the year 60. He spends two years. So do the math. At the year 62, he's released from prison. Why? We don't know why. We know he gets out. There's two theories. One theory is he went before Caesar and... Caesar's like, where's the evidence? He's a Roman citizen? Don't waste my time. Get out of here. And he leaves. A free man. Or you can't have a trial without any accusers being present. Maybe the Jews from Jerusalem never made it to Rome to accuse him. And so there was never a trial. Either one is a very plausible explanation and Paul goes free. So what does he do? What does he do as a free man? Well, again, we don't know. However, going back to the scriptures, what does he tell the Romans in chapter 15? He tells the Romans in chapter 15, Hey, I hope to come to you soon. This is, of course, many years before that. And when I do, I'm going to go on to Spain. Did Paul go to Spain? Maybe. We don't know. He also told the Philippians while he's in prison, that he's going to come see them soon. Did Paul go to Philippi? Did he make it there? Probably. Do we have proof of it? No. This is what we do know, though. Eusebius, who is an early church historian that lived around that time period in the early centuries, wrote in his history book that Paul was imprisoned again. He was set free from prison he comes back and he's arrested. And when he's arrested, he is ordered to be beheaded at the order of Emperor Nero. And Paul's life ends there. Very interestingly, a great persecution began at that time. Because it even reported, according to the church history and tradition, that the apostle Peter was also killed at the same time. You see, up until this time, Rome... They didn't really care about the Christians. The persecution was really from Jewish people, as we've seen from throughout the book of Acts. But beginning with Nero, the persecution elevated and became more severe. One of the reasons is that the Roman emperor Nero, who was Caesar during this time, it is said that he set fire to the city. It burned for nine days, destroying much of Rome. And then what did Nero do? A man who killed his own mother, by the way. 
he blamed all the Christians. And the people in Rome and around the world revolted and persecuted Christians like never before. This is probably when Paul was rearrested after the Roman fire and the Christian persecution escalated. He was arrested and beheaded by the order of Nero to kill all Christians you find. If they will not say that I am Lord and they say Jesus is Lord, just kill them. And what happened to these believers in the years after this? Many were beheaded. Many were crucified. Many were cut in half. Many were pierced by the sword. We know Peter did not count himself worthy, so he was crucified upside down. Some of them were tied alive in animal skins and set up on huge poles filled with wax and set on fire as human torches as they lit the streets of Rome at night. Some were thrown to lions for sport in the Colosseum. And that's probably most likely what happened to Paul. He's freed here. He's out for a year or two, rearrested, and then eventually beheaded. The last few books he writes is the pastoral epistles. The last book we know that Paul wrote is 2 Timothy. And at the end of 2 Timothy, he knows under arrest, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I fought the fight. I'm going to see Jesus soon. So he doesn't die here at the end of Acts. It probably happens two more years later. But I'm glad that Luke doesn't tell us all that. Why? Because Acts is not about Paul. Acts is about the Holy Spirit working through his people to advance and further the gospel. This is why many say that the book of Acts has never ended. Why? Because who knows? The story that we're in today could be Acts chapter 5,732. And if you want me to preach that sermon series, (laughs) I will. This is a continuation of that. The gospel is still going forward, amen? We're sending missionaries. We're preaching the gospel here locally. We're sharing Christ with people. We're discipling. We're planting churches. The book of Acts never really ends because the Holy Spirit is still working. He's working in different ways than he did back then. There's no signs and wonders, as we've always said. But the gospel is going forward as the word is going, as the word is now complete. The Bible is written. We must preach Christ boldly. And the same things happen the same way. Sinners get saved when they know that they are a sinner and they need Jesus. And they turn to him in repentance and faith and believe. God is saving his people. All of his elect will be redeemed before he returns. I'm glad Acts ends on a cliffhanger because it's not the end of the story. Alistair Begg actually has said it's just the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning. And we are in that story now, my friends. And may we take heed to the call of this scripture. 
that the Lord Jesus commanded his apostles. And you will be filled with power from on high. And you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. By the way, I do think, I have, I have a knack to think that Paul did make it to Spain. Because at that time, Spain was really what? The end of the world. I think Paul saw it in his mission to go as far as possible to the end of the world, to be obedient to the command of the Lord Jesus. So may the Lord use this book in your life, this passage. May you have a clear understanding of what our church ought to do and needs to do and continue to do, that we know what a church is. We've learned what elders are. We need to put that into practice. We, we saw what deacons are. We need to put that into practice. We see what evangelism and missions are. We need to put that into practice. We need to, we saw what suffering, ha- when suffering happens in the life of a Christian, how to put that into practice and how we respond. Most importantly, as the gospel has borne fruit in Acts, we must know that it continues to bear fruit here. You are all proof of that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your your word. Wow. 28 glorious chapters of gospel advancement. I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write these words to Theophilus. So that we can have an account of what happened and how we ought to conduct ourselves and what we ought to do and how the mission continues today. It is not mission accomplished until King Jesus returns in all his glory and the last of his elect from all four corners of the world are gathered and redeemed and brought into the family. Until that day or until the day of our death, Keep us faithful, find us faithful to do all that we can for the glory of King Jesus. Transform this church more and more each day into a biblical church. Continue to reform us according to the word of God. Keep us faithful to send missionaries to share the gospel with our lost friends and neighbors. Let us never lose that passion As Paul was pleading with them night, morning till night, let us do the same here. As Spurgeon said, if hell's going to be filled, let them leap over our dead bodies to get there. Lord, let us stand in the way. Find us faithful in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet, sing a closing hymn together. Thank you so much for being here today. If you have questions on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, be born again, I'd love to talk to you more today, like Paul did with these people in his house. If you're a Christian and you need prayer and you need counsel, come see me after the service. I'll be in the Welcome Center. God bless you. Let's sing together.